0: Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Dan Mervich's latest film, 18 and a Half, humorously crafts its own narrative into the notorious gap in President Richard Nixon's White House scandal taking place in 1974. 18 and a half is about a fictional White House transcriber who finds the only copy of the infamous 18 and a half minute gap in one of the most consequential recordings during the entire Watergate investigation. But her attempts to leak it to the press run afoul of hippies, swingers, and nefarious forces. 18 and a half is a wonderfully smart funny insightful film and we're fortunate to have with us the director as well as the co-screenwriter of 18 and a half and that would be dan Mervich. dan welcome back to film school radio
1: thank you mike thanks for having me on
0: this is such a, a terrific premise And uh, for someone who was old enough to have lived through Watergate and who hung on every word of the Watergate hearings and all of the different reports that were coming in, what put you onto this as an idea to do a film?
1: Well, you remember uh, my last film, Bernard and Huey. I was, uh, you were gracious enough to have me on for that one. Um, The last day of shooting that film was in New York and, and it happened to coincide with the presidential election of November, 2016. And the very next day, I was taking uh, dailies to show Jules Pfeiffer, who you remember wrote Bernard and Huey, but, you know, very famous. Political cartoonist and and actually won a Pulitzer for his political cartoons about Nixon and Watergate. So inevitably, the conversation went back to between you know what might be happen, what could happen in the next four years to Nixon and Watergate, and how you know as a country we survive that one way or another. You know what could possibly, how many impeachments could we possibly have (laughs) in the next four years? You know, or what could possibly happen? So. Um, anyway, so we were just talking about Watergate and Nixon a lot, and then that night I stayed, took the ferry from Shelter Island, which is uh, tip of Long Island, um, took it over to Greenport, which is you know also on Long Island, and my buddy Terry Keefe uh, owned this motel that he'd inherited from his grandparents who built it in the 50s and 60s, called the Silver Sands Motel, and uh, Terry's a savvy filmmaker himself, so he'd kept it kind of preserved. You know, as a cool vintage motel and uses it in addition to a motel for a lot of fashion shoots, um, you know, high end fashion shoots for Vogue and Harper's. But he said, but no one's ever shot a feature film here and we're closed in the winter. Dan, if you come up with an idea where, you know, the cast and crew can stay here. And he was with me talking to Pfeiffer and we sort of were talking about, huh, I wonder if there's a way to do a Watergate film here because it looks like 1974. And then it took a while of, of research. And then I collaborated with a great writing partner, Daniel Moya. And in doing the research into, you know, back into Watergate, uh, we realized that there were several different offices or about four or five different offices in the Nixon White House that had these voice activated taping systems. And there really are tapes of Nixon listening to tapes and fumbling around with the buttons. And, and once I realized that there plausibly could be a tape of somebody listening to and then erasing the 18 and a half minute gap, then that became the kind of the way into the the story, into the plot, and then ultimately the characters. And so that's why Connie could have a tape of the 18 and a half minute gap and and then meet a reporter at the Seaside Motel. And then coincidentally, Daniel had an aunt who worked at this diner down the street and that's also a vintage diner. So we're like, well, that's two locations. You know, when the when the film gods give you locations, you 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 thank you thank the film gods, and you say, well, let's make a movie. You know, yeah. so so then we have to make the movie.
0: There aren't too many mysteries left about Watergate. I think there's been enough research and. and yeah, and now we know who happen- Deep
1: Throat is. That was a big mystery right. that finally got yeah. answered. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. And, you know, and there, I mean, there may be around the the, the fringes of some connections that uh, people like uh, the, the plumbers. I'm trying to think I'm mm-hmm. blanking out on some of these guys. But, but this is the one mystery. This is the yeah. one one thing about Watergate that was widely considered to be the smoking gun. This is mm-hmm. the tape that w- purportedly had Nixon and everybody else confessing to yes. basically what what had transpired. So it's so good that you took this because, again, I just think it's such a great idea and that you made it. It's uh, it's funny and it's also it's a it's a satire. I love how the premise works and how you have a a superb cast of actors Uh, who really sell it. I think they really did a great job.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, we were blessed with a fantastic cast. I mean, Willa Fitzgerald is Connie, yeah. who a lot of people now know from her role in Reacher uh, that just came out this, uh, this spring. She was great. Uh, John Magaro, who was from First Cow and, and The Big Short and, and a lot of other fantastic things. And they had just fantastic chemistry between them. And then we brought in this older couple played by vondi curtis hall and catherine Curtin, who just knock it out of the park and uh you know have so much fun with it um and then there's people you know like richard kind who plays jack the uh you know who runs the motel was um and he you know you may remember was in bernard and huey yeah so this was the second time i got a chance to work with richard and he's just such a treat and brings you know so much (laughs) to any any role he does and then we have this phenomenal voice cast. We got Bruce Campbell as Nixon, uh, John Cryer as as Haldeman, and Ted Raimi as uh, General Al Haig. And um, and those guys really embraced their roles and 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 brought so much to to that. And and you hear a lot of them in the film.
0: Yeah, and some guy named Dan Mervich is also the radio announcer <laughs> on, on, in, in doing some voiceover work. Yeah, well, so, thank you.
1: Well, I had the he, microphone, but yes, you uh, had yeah. the
0: microphone. Yeah, and uh, again, maybe I—I I don't know if I skipped over the good part here in the sense that of people who may or may not even know what Watergate is. Should we? We should we do, do a little bit of an explanation as to what Watergate was and why it's important.
1: Sure. Yeah, it was. Uh, and, and not that you need to know that much going right. into the film, um, right. but it but basically it was the scandal because Nixon's operatives, uh, known as the Plumbers, that was their code name, um, got caught breaking into the Democratic National Committee headquarters that was in the Watergate Hotel. That's why it's called Watergate. And three days later, Nixon is talking to his chief of staff, um, Bob Haldeman, uh, in the White House, and it's being recorded (laughs) on this taping system that they both knew about but had forgotten about and um, and then, later, a year and a half later, that gets subpoenaed by by the uh, special prosecutor, and it's got this missing 18 and a half minute cap. and And you can tell from the Nixon notes or, or from Haldeman's notes that that's the time that they're talking about Watergate. Yeah. And then the you know, the funny part of the scandal that really became sort of more popular culture, uh, you know, was that then Nixon's secretary, Rosemary Woods, Demonstrated, uh, she took the fall for it. She said, "Oh, I must have deleted it accidentally." And there's this very famous picture of her stretching, with her pushing one button with her right hand and and the record pedal with her left foot. And this was on the cover of Time and Newsweek as as Rosemary's Boo Boo, and nobody in America believed her. Republican, Democrat, everyone was like, "Hang on a second, this is this is just too too much of a stretch, literally." And and that I think was the real pivotal turning point in what had been a long simmering scandal scandal, you know, for about a year and a half and, and hadn't really resonated with the public. And then as soon as this, the 18 happened at gap, it was was discovered and then and then and then covered up. And, and the, you know, the blame, you know, Rosemary thrown under the bus um, that I think really turned the tide. And within a few months, there were impeachment hearings and and he was on the road to impeachment and, and then resigned. Yeah. So, um, so it was a real, I think, a turning point in um, in the in the scandal itself
0: it was a real, oh, come on moment, really. <laughs> exactly. It was kind of like, and and really, and it's so befitting of Nixon, because he had this sort of paranoid view of who was out to get him, you know, mm-hmm. he sort of had the worldview that everyone was trying to get to him, and he was surrounded by Haldeman, Ehrlichman, two guys who kind of fed into that paranoia and made it, Probably made it a lot worse than it really was.
1: Well, exactly, and that's what everyone says said at the time and now, which is that the cover-up was worse than the crime. You know? Yeah. So,
0: and I'll, I'll just a bit of trivia because I want to show off a little bit. The existence of this taping system was at, by accident it was an, an afterthought in an interview the fbi yeah. was doing with a guy named alexander butterfield, butterfield. who happened yep. to be sort of a he's sort of a maintenance guy not a maintenance guy but he was sort of <laughs> a, sort of a peripheral person in yeah the
1: technical guy right? and
0: when he said it out loud he realized what he had done and there was a whole there's a whole drama around like his revelation of it and that oh, oh shit moment that yeah. uh that he had so there's a there's a lot here To be lampooned and it's, but it's also not, it's not like this is not slapstick funny. It's character driven funny. It's the Mm -hmm. characters you put them in these situations and how they react to it. I have to say this and I don't know if I say this to another filmmaker about some other filmmaker, but this reminds me of an Altman film from the 1970s. It has a real Altman feel to it.
1: Well, hopefully that's not complete coincidence. I mean, he he was my mentor on, on my first film, and, and I did get to know him pretty well. And his grandson, Dana Altman, is still one of my producing partners. Uh, Dana lives out in, in Omaha, but we made this, my first film, Omaha, the movie together. And um, so, and one of the things I really took from, from Robert Altman was was his um technique of recording all the actors on individual lav mics and uh and then and then record you know and then keeping each track separate so that in post-production you can really mix and match them but what it does is it, it really encourages the actors to do overlapping dialogue you know to not worry about you know stepping over each other which is something that was revolutionary for altman now a lot of People do it, but I, I think having known him, I, I kind of know a bit more of the nuances of, of how and, and why he did it. And so that was that was definitely, yeah, definitely a big influence. But you get much better performances from the actors out of it. Um, you know, well, they're, a they're, little they're, technical change.
0: Right. They're all on. Right. They have to be on for the entire scene of their.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. They can't hide behind the camera because they never know when they're, you know, because they're always being recorded. So their voice may always be used at any given time. And then what Altman did is he combined that with the Zoom lens, which we used a fair bit of Zoom in this, although in a slightly different way than what he did. But, and that that was interesting. Then talking to Altman actors like Sally Kellerman, uh, who had been in MASH, she was in one of my films. And, you know, she said, Yeah, we never knew when we were on camera. So it forced us to always just stay in character. Yeah. Thing either sound or picture was always rolling. <laughs> so it was a it's a it was a great lesson in filmmaking, you know, that I learned from him.
0: You mentioned MASH. Mash is one of my favorite all-time favorite oh, films. Yeah, Nashville, there's so many of I mean, I I thought he was just an incredible director. He was a, an actor's director, and that's yeah. what this film feels like. And that that the respect he had and it's evident in this film as well with you that you have for these performers these actors and the roles that they're playing I have to you mentioned uh Vondi Curtis Hall and Catherine Curtin and they are so good in this film they're they're just their character of Lena and Samuel they work that 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 kind of comedic back and forth and the way that she kind of Lena kind of pulls them into the to the cabin and then all this stuff that ensues. And, you know, there's something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You just know there is. There's just no way around it. But you're not sure exactly how it's going to play out.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And And that was the fun thing just in crafting the script and also the performances is. Yeah. Like we don't, you know, the audience should know that there's something funny going on. You just don't know exactly what, like, are, are these guys swingers or cannibals or who knows what they are? <laughs> yeah. You know? And then, you know, and then ultimately we find out what they are. But um, and, and part of the fun of it, too, just on set was that we had cast Vondi Curtis Hall and Kathy Curtin, the, those two characters. Um, with only about thirty-six hours' notice before they showed up on set, and meanwhile we'd been shooting for a week with Willa Fitzgerald and and John McGarrah, kind of who are sort of the straight characters in the movie. So you know those were had a certain tone to their to their scenes, and then Kathy and and Vondi show up with these crazy characters, and and the reactions from and we had no time to rehearse either. So the reactions from Willa and from and from John are pretty much real reactions from the actors themselves. And I was talking to Vandy and he said that was that was fun for them. You know, it was electric, uh, not knowing what the other actors were gonna do in the moment. And um, he said that was really a lot of fun for all of them.
0: What they were wearing, kind of the setting, all of it mm. just, yeah, it just works so well in, in the film there's some other elements in the film i don't want to say too much more than that but uh all that works richard kind as you mentioned is so wonderful i always love him and everything yeah he's done it's certainly it's great to see him on curb he's you know being yeah. there yeah. and all these other curb your enthusiasm in case i say curb i feel like everybody should know by now <laughs> i want to talk about el schneider your cinematographer Let's talk a little bit about her importance in terms of not only the cinematography, but in other aspects of the making of 18 and a half.
1: Uh, with her. yes, yeah, she's yeah, her. she's terrific. I've known her for a long time and she's actually known as being one of the, the co-founders of, of uh, DigiBolex, um, which was a, a digital version of the Bolex camera that was around for a few years. And which is not what we shot on, but I knew through that, like she had a really deep appreciation for vintage um, lenses, vintage, what goes into the vintage look, whatever vintage you're you're aiming for and kind of knew how to get that. And and we both big, you know, fans of 70s conspiracy thriller films, 60s films, you know, films like uh, Clute and Three Days of the Condor and and, Parallax View and and All the President's Men, of course, uh, but also the Altman films, Long Goodbye, films like that. So we really kind of took our cues from there and, and, and kind of my mandate to to not just her, but really every department from, from writing to acting to production design to, to music, is we were only going to use the creative tools and techniques that could have been used in 1974. And so that meant no drones no steady cams even because they came around in in 76 so that kind of gave us a, a set of creative rules for ourselves um but on the music side all the instruments were had to be vintage you know 60s and 70s instruments it could have been uh, even some of the microphones and things like that and in the editing when i, I was the editor you know i I mean, I was trained in film, and so I know, like, okay, I, I, I'm i going to cut it as if I'm cutting film, you know, so there's no ramp ups and speed or things that you would only do now. So that was kind of, that was kind of our our mantra on everything. And, you know, and honestly, that fit in well with working on a low budget film, because we couldn't afford a lot of fancy tricks and, and tools anyway. So we're like, all right, well, that's what do we have and, and how can we use them to, to the best of our abilities? Yeah.
0: You shot this in the winter. Because you were saying that's when the hotel yeah. or motel was closed out. Yeah. It, and it it really adds to that that sort of depressing
1: mm-hmm.
0: sort of frustration of the country around this period of time. The mm-hmm. frustration with the with the political leadership, there was sort of felt a feeling around the country that things were unraveling. Yeah, so and I want to kind of bring it up to date. Do you feel like the spirit of this film, the spirit of what you were doing with that film, is relevant today or is it is it say something about us today?
1: Yeah, yeah. And that was one of the reasons we made it was it was, uh, you know, if you if you try to do a a political analogy or a satire, uh, you know, about what's going on in the moment, it's going to be out of date within a month. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the way our news cycle works and the way politics works, and especially in independent film, you don't know how long it's going to take to write to raise money, when it's going to come out, where it's going to come out. Someone may see it 20 years later. And, and then, so the nice thing about doing a period film, any period film is that it it you can thematically put in as much as you want that's gonna be, that is still gonna be resonant and relevant to whatever time and place people ultimately see the film in. So for example, with this film, 18 and a half, I mean, we've shown it at 21 festivals around the world on four continents. You know, when we showed it in Brazil at the Sao Paulo International Festival, people were like, oh, this is really an analogy to Bolsonaro. Or in in Spain, everyone was like, this is really about Franco, you know. And in England, when we showed it there, they're like, oh, this is just like the Boris Johnson scandal. You know, it starts as a goofy little scandal, but the cover up's worse than the crime. Here in the States, people are like, oh, this is just about Trump or, or, but, you know, other people can read into it. Oh, this is really about Biden or whoever, you know, right. whoever the next president is going to be. And and that's what's great about it is thematically, it can, it can, it's, you know, these are universal themes about absolute power corrupting, absolutely, but, but still how one person can make a difference, you know, where, at whatever level they are.
0: Yes. Beautifully said. I want to let people know that in addition to your work here with 18 and a half, uh, you mentioned uh, Bernard and Huey and also uh, Between Us, some of the other films that you've worked on and been a part of, but also as a co-founder of the Slamdance Film Festival. I do want to talk a little bit about that. And I know a little bit of the backstory, (laughs) but we don't, and we don't have to go too sure, that, but but the fact that you you are have been a filmmaker's filmmaker. Yeah, thanks. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I mean this was in in the mid '90s, and it was at a time when when I made my first film, Omaha, the movie. But it was at a time when independent film was kind of becoming Hollywoodized. So Miramax had just become part of Disney, and uh, Fine Line had just become part of Warner Brothers, and Fox was launching Fox Searchlight and Sundance, which had been this great beacon of independent filmmaking for first-time filmmakers working on low budgets. Um, for 10 years they kind of went Hollywood and they're like woohoo Harvey come on in and and you know they started showing films by second time directors and films with bigger budgets and films that already had stars and distribution in place and they kind of forgot about the niche of the the first time independent filmmakers that had been influenced by that kind of first generation of Sundancers so you know so i teamed up with the initially that first year in 95 january 95 we had a dozen features and a dozen short filmmakers uh, all first-time directors all low budgets and with no distribution prospects at all and um and we just showed up in park city literally 30 feet down the hall from one of sundance's screening rooms and they were like what and um and you know and this was then time when the press was starting to kind of turn on sundance too so we became kind of the press darlings and then by the end of that week we realized you know what we're serving a bit of a niche here that that uh, you know there's going to be a need for in future years so we've been doing it for 28 29 years and be- and through that we've shown the first films of a pretty amazing group of people, Bong Joon Ho, uh, Christopher Nolan, the Russo brothers, Ryan Johnson, who'd been actually a PA on my first film, the late Lynn Shelton, uh, the Safdie brothers, Sean Baker. Yeah, am- some amazing people over the years and um, still a scrappy still little festival. Yeah, still going. Yeah, it's
0: still going at the hotel. What's the hotel? I forgot the name of it. The, uh,
1: the Treasure Mountain Inn. The in Treasure Park Mountain City. Yeah. I mean, the last two years we had to go virtual because yeah. Sundance was too, but uh, we're hoping that this this year, if Hopefully, there's enough of a, a window here for a theatrical release for people to still go to the theater safely between between their BA2 COVID and and getting monkeypox. Is a, there's a, a narrow window where we can still show movies in movie theaters, and so that's why Open House we've got you know is exclusively in movie theaters for the next few weeks, and um, and it is a, it is going to be playing in Irvine, by the way, in. Um, uh, starting June 3rd but it's it's opening in this Friday uh, May 27th in New York and LA uh, in LA it'll be at uh, Lemley Santa Monica um, at the Lemley's Monica and then June 3rd it's opening about 50 theaters around the current around the country which is a pretty sizable release for any indie film yeah. um, so we're very grateful to our distributor um, adventure entertainment yeah
0: definitely yeah uh, films uh, 101 Films International is that Part of your- yeah, they're
1: do. Yeah, they're doing the international sales, and then they will also do the VOD and streaming, yeah. uh, which will be in July, and then and then there's a Blu-ray and DVD that's coming out in September, and it's going to be on airplanes in August or September. Um, the soundtrack actually just came out this week, so that's on Spotify and iTunes and digital places. Great.
0: This is going to be one of those films that people will watch it and they'll tell somebody else about. I I sure hope so. They will. (laughs) They they will. Because, I mean, it's really, it's such, it's so well done. And it's, like I said, it's got a great cast. It's funny. It's, there's just so much to like about the film. By the way, you can go to 18, the number, and a half, spell that out, movie. So 18andAhalfMovie.com to find out more about the film.
1: Yeah, yeah, and we're on all the social media too and yeah, various- And dare I
0: say it out loud, but I believe it's 100% on Rotten Tomatoes.
1: As of this morning, it was. Yes,
0: uh, <laughs> I know, I know. By the
1: afternoon, it could be something different, but we'll take it, you know, I yeah, mean, so 100% far 100% so on
0: Rotten Tomatoes, yeah. I know. That's one of those things that filmmakers, I'm sure, are just aggravated as all get out about that, that somehow, some way has way more influence than it should. But nonetheless. Uh, Hey, but if it's
1: a good influence, then I'll (laughs) take it. So, yeah, why not?
0: Absolutely. Well, Dan, thank you. Thank you for this film. 18 and a half again uh, just a delightful film really really wonderful well done acting is superb uh, I had I was not familiar with Willa Fitzgerald before this film and I'm now I I'm obsessed with her I thought she was yeah. just terrific in it uh,
1: well thank you and uh, oh just to so your the local audience there knows it is going to be at the Regal Edwards West Park in uh, oh, in Irvine um, okay. June 3rd to June 9th so
0: okay be looking for the West Park there. has become kind of the mecca for uh, good oh, Great. Independent filmmaking. Oh,
1: fantastic, uh, so. fantastic! That's great. So, to
0: hear. Uh, all right. Well, Dan Mervich, thank you so very much for your time. Thank you so. Come back anytime, and uh, thanks, Mike. Uh, maybe I'll see you up at Treasure Mountain in some time too. Uh, I, hope, the, so. I right. hope so. All right. All right. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, thanks very you, much, Mike. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films.